Actor Cary Grant, the late Cary Grant, once told how he was walking along the street and he met a fellow whose eyes walked onto him with excitement. And the man said, wait a minute, you're, you're, I know who you are, don't tell me. You're Rock Hud, no, you're, so Grant thought he'd help him. So he finished the man's statement, Cary Grant. And the fellow said, no, that's not it. Your, your. So there was Cary Grant identifying himself with his own name, but the fellow had someone else in mind. John says of Jesus, in John chapter 1, verse 10, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. And I lost the sheet. (laughs) Hang on. There it is. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And even when Jesus identified who he was, the Son of God, the response was not a welcomed recognition, but the crucifixion. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we come before you this morning with joyful hearts. Joyful because you are our salvation. And since the beginning, your will was that none should perish. Thank you that you have worked out our salvation through your Son, Jesus. And through him, we can come to you just as we are, forgiven and redeemed. Father, may we show your love to all those that we meet, and may they see your grace through us, and may they come to want to be a child of you, and to accept your salvation. Thank you for your love expressed through the sacrifice of your son Jesus. And may the word spoken here this morning be pleasing to your ears. In Jesus' name, amen. A man once asked his friend, what color are the pastor or the speaker's eyes? And he answered, I don't know, because when he prays, he closes his eyes, and when he preaches, I close mine. (laughs) So, for that reason, the sermon this morning will be a short one. Our topic this morning is Philip from the book of Acts, not to be confused with the Apostle Philip or Philip Donaldson. So let's read what Luke has to say about him in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. 
The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So two different groups of people responded to accepting Christ as Lord and Savior through the proclamation of the gospel through the apostles. The Palestinian Jews were one of these groups. They were descendants of the exile group, exiled Jews, who returned from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra. They were intensely nationalistic, vigilant in the observance of the law and the traditions of the Jewish religion. Those in the other group were called Hellenists. The word refers to Greek-speaking Jews living in, a Greek, in the Greek-speaking world around the Mediterranean who maintained the religion through the synagogues in their own cities. Some were descendants of the dispersion Jews who did not return to Palestine after the exile and who were scattered around in various nations and cities. And others were part of the large number of Jewish merchants drawn away from Palestine for economic and business enterprises. The passion of every Jew was to return to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, particularly during the time of Passover through to the Feast of the Pentecost. These Jews were part of the crowd that observed what happened when the Holy Spirit filled the disciple on on Pentecost morning. Many of them remained in the city after a return visit, and some became permanent citizens. But they did not lose their Greek cultural background and were never fully accepted by the Palestinian Jews. A tension between these two groups had built throughout the years. When both the Palestinian and Hellenistic Jews responded to the gospel, they were drawn into a close relationship that could not otherwise have been possible. But the prejudices persisted. And even after they became followers of the Lord, because in the account of this squabble, Luke allows us an honest look at an age-old problem. Just as what happened in the infant church in Jerusalem, we sometimes bring our prejudices into the new life in Christ and into our attitudes in the church. I think sometimes we have the illusion that the only solution to 21st century problems in the church is to get back to the peace and unity of the early days when the church was all that the Lord intended. But Luke helps us see that our task is to live in our time with the Lord of all times. And the only way to do that is to look for the potential, the potential hidden in our problem. Isn't it a comfort to know that everything was not perfect in the early church? The Hellenistic converts felt that the Palestinian converts were given preference in the distribution of the offerings that had been collected from the members of the church in the expression of their all things in common sharing. The Hellenistics believed that what they had put into the common offering was not being equally distributed among their widows and people in need. Perhaps there's a tendency in human nature, even after our conversion, to split the fellowship into fractions 
factions with different emphases. What the Lord has brought together, we sometimes put asunder. And the budget is often the focus of the mess. We often miss the powerful formula of authentic Christianity. I think what impresses me most is the lack of defensiveness among the apostles as they confront the problem head on. If the Hellenistics were disturbed about a seemingly inequality, then let's put the Hellenistics in charge of the distribution. Ingenious. They were to be from among you. That's the qualifications that they gave. Not just Greek-speaking Jews, but people who were involved in the church because of conversion and transformation into the new life. The second qualification is an expression of that. They should be men of good reputation. So often, the temptation of many local churches is to bypass these criteria and select people with natural abilities or training in a certain area. Important as these are, without the Holy Spirit, they can stand in the way of spiritual leadership in the church. Qualifications for leadership in the Church of Christ have not changed since the first century. We can do church work without them, but not the real work of the church. And I just thank God that BFA has spiritual leadership here. Notice that the men Luke names were selected, were all Hellenists. And the selection was not done by casting lots, as with Matthias before Pentecost, but through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that a great many priests were obedient to the faith. That means that a very significant segment of Israel's leadership was being affected. It also accounts for the alarm of the Pharisees over the influence of the disciples. And especially one Pharisee in particular that Luke is getting us ready to hear about, a Pharisee named Saul. Of the seven chosen, Luke chooses to focus on only two of them, Philip and Stephen. And from the time of their selection and consecration by the apostles, the seven did much more than just wait on tables, important as that was. We read of their preaching and teaching, witnessing and converting people. And we see that two of them, Stephen and Philip, were the cutting edge of breaking barriers and moving to new frontiers. In Acts 6 and 7, we read of the stoning of Stephen. And in Acts 8, verses 1 to 3, we read, And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women, and he put them in prison. Saul had hoped that Stephen's execution would frighten the followers of Jesus into silence and subservience. But his plan had backfired. It scattered the fire of faith. 
Let's continue by reading Acts 8, verses 4 to 13. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, and he amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention, and they exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. The Jews had very little or no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus passed through Samaria on his way back and forth from Galilee to Jerusalem. He ministered to some of them, and he used one as an example of his daring parable about a good Samaritan. What happened to Philip, recorded in Acts chapter 8, is a powerful analysis of communication to others about what Christ means to us. Philip has much to teach us, both from what he didn't do and what he did do. He preached Christ, and this brought about conversion. New life in Christ and miracles of healing and liberation from possession of evil spirits and sickness. Preaching Christ is the basic purpose of any ministry. Spurgeon said, we have a great need for Christ and a great Christ for our needs. Philip came to Samaria with only one passion and purpose, to preach Christ. The people of Samaria were entangled in magic and sorcery, not unlike people today who are seeking shortcuts to meeting their needs. When Philip preached the name of Jesus, he shared the secret of unlocking the power of the Lord for specific situations. He also gave them a powerful tool against evil possession of their minds and their behavior. The one thing Satan cannot abide is the name of Jesus. And Philip's preaching of Jesus enabled his ministry to set a city free. Let's continue reading Acts verses 14 to 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. There was another need that the Samaritans had which Philip did not meet. Peter and John had come down to Samaria to finish what Philip had begun. The question we must ask ourselves is, why would Philip 
who is full, who is one of the seven full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, not preach the Holy Spirit as part of his message. Peter and John saw this immediately when they arrived. They knew that these people could not live the new life in Christ without his indwelling spirit. And that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) So let's finish the rest of Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, They came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. It seems that the Lord wanted Philip in the right place at the right time to meet the officer from Ethiopia. And there were no arguments from Philip. He arose and he went. The Lord tailors our message to the particular needs of each person. The way that Philip had preached to the Samaritans would not have worked with the Ethiopians, with the Ethiopian. And the thing we learn about sharing our faith is the way the Holy Spirit guides us through ordinary warmth and concern for people. Philip's natural inclination was to care about the man. Because people don't need to hang an I need Jesus sign around their necks. We know that all people need Jesus. By finding out what the people's interests are, we have the thread to know how to share Christ with him or her. Philip starts where the Ethiopian is in relation to Christ and not where he should be. And he met him at his level. Philip does what is absolutely essential in presenting Christ to an individual. He waits for signs of the Ethiopian's response and readiness. 
Philip does not pressure the Ethiopian because a hurried demand for a response can either turn a person off or result in their responding to our pressure and not to Christ. Philip never got to a question like that with the eunuch because he didn't have to. It was a eunuch that asked. And then the Holy Spirit wished Philip off to his next assignment because the Lord had other work for him to do. And Ethiopia now had a Christian secretary of the treasury. Philip continues his ministry as an evangelist, and the next and final time that we meet Philip is in Acts chapter 21, verse 8 and 9, where Philip stops, where Paul stops at Philip's home on his final trip to Jerusalem. Let's read these two verses. Luke writes, Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So when Paul, accompanied by Luke, was going up to Jerusalem for the last time, he paused at Caesarea and he spent several days with Philip. This may be the source of some of the information that Luke used in writing the early chapters of Acts. Philip was one of the seven elected by the church in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, who was sent to Samaria to preach the gospel in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 24. And he had introduced the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 29. In Acts chapter 8, verse 40, we're told that he went to Caesarea. He settled there and he continued his ministry of evangelism. And in chapter 21, Paul visited him and Philip had four daughters that had the gift of prophecy. And Luke writes no more of Philip. When I read about Philip, I'm brought back to a story I read about an old man walking the beach at dawn. He noticed a young man ahead of him picking up starfish and flinging them into the sea. Catching up with the youth, he asked what he was doing. And the answer was that the stranded starfish would die if they were left until the morning sun. But the beach goes on for miles, and there are millions of starfish, stated the old man. How can your effort make a difference? The young man looked at the starfish in his hand and then threw it safely into the waves. It makes a difference to this one. We may not be able to share the good news of salvation in Christ with everyone in the world, but the one person that we do share it with makes a difference to them. But yet, sometimes rescue attempts go wrong when we're trying to save someone who doesn't want to be saved. We can show people a lifeline, But if they can't see the danger or simply don't want to be rescued, they will not grab the rope and may even get annoyed at our well-meaning attempts. As Christians, our commission is to go out and share the good news. The problem today is many people don't see a need for salvation. They either don't believe in an afterlife or they believe there will be no judgment afterwards. 
Evolution implies that we have no soul. And popular belief of spiritualism says that everyone goes to heaven. When we attempt to rescue someone who doesn't wish to be rescued, we sometimes do more damage than good. Because only people who realize that they are in danger actually call for help. So what can we do to rescue loved ones who have rejected the gospel and refuse salvation? We should never give up on anyone because that is not our right. Only God knows when a person has reached the point of no return. In trying to save anyone, we should exhibit the patience and the traits of Christ because he did not force himself on anybody. It was his graceful attitude that guided many people to seek salvation. We should pray that God brings an awareness of judgment, which is the eternal consequences of personal choice, into the lives of those who have rejected his gift of salvation. And when they come to the realization their immortal soul is in peril, that's a golden opportunity for us to throw them a divine lifeline, the gospel, and encourage them to grab hold. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Stand. Let us just pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the message this morning. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you continue to do in each life. We pray if there's someone here this morning that hasn't received you as their Savior. Father, help them open their eyes, we pray. Help them to see that you're the only hope that we have in this world. And Father, we just thank you for each one here. We pray that you will bless them. Bring them a blessing, Lord. Bring them to you. And help those that do know you, Lord. Please help us to to live the life. For we're not here for very long. A lifetime is very short. Like you say in your scriptures, the grass, grass flourishes and it's gone. Father, we just praise you. We thank you for this time that we could gather together. We pray and give thanks for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.